American Christianity says, oh, I want to be set free from trouble. I want to be set free from pain, from difficulty. We want to fashion ourselves a more comfortable cross, one that's easier to wear and bear, but one that doesn't cost us anything. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. Today on the podcast, we start the first message out of a three-week series called Incarnate. And this was preached at Shoreline Church in December of 2018. And we were going through the importance of the doctrine of the incarnation. And so I hope you enjoy this very important, very timely message. Uh, Today's message is called Hope Incarnate. Glad you're with us this morning. If you need a Bible, will you raise your hand high? Everybody needs a Bible this morning. We teach verse by verse through the scriptures. We are in the Gospel of John chapter 12, so raise your hand if you need a Bible. Raise them high, we'll get you one. If you have a Bible app, you can look under events and follow along. Uh, We have someone that puts all of our notes in, so you can follow along in the Bible app. Just look for Shoreline Calvary Chapel. Uh, Today, we have a reading in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 26 from the New King James. So let's read together. Verse 1 says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus." Verse 12, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Let's bow our heads together. This is the word of God. Lord, this morning we come before you with hearts that are full of gratitude and thanksgiving. We want to be like that one leper of the ten who came back cleansed and full of gratitude and thanksgiving worshipped. Lord, today we acknowledge that our very breath, Lord, comes from you. That as we open up the scriptures, they come from you. As we are taught by your Holy Spirit, the one who is our teacher, that is all from you. That as we live our lives in obedience, it is for you, to you, your glory that we live and that we obey, that we have our being. Lord, we thank you that as we study the scriptures today, you want to illuminate Jesus to us. So we pray, Lord, that you would communicate your truth and allow us, Lord, to see Jesus. As these Greeks asked, that we would just see Jesus. Lord, we know we're not the only expression of the church in this community. We lift up our friends at Calvary Chapel, Sarasota, and Pastor Carl Dixon. Pray that you'd continue to richly bless them with the endeavors they're seeking to do, the people they seek to outreach to, and Lord, the uh, disciples that they're making. Continue to bless our sister church. We thank you uh, for the blessing that they are to us. May we be a blessing to them as well. And so we commit our service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever texted somebody... Uh, show of hands, you te- well, let me get to it. Have you ever texted someone and you thought you were texting the right person, but then you received a reply back and you realize, oh, oh I, I sent the text to the wrong person. And the way they responded made you go, who did I send this to? Has that ever happened to you? Am I the only one that's, okay. So a few of us have had texting issues. Uh, this happened to a person named Melanie. We have it on the screen. Hey, girl, it's Melanie from Old Navy. Could you take my 445 to 9 shift tonight? Yeah, I'd love to take your hours. Yay, thanks, you're the best. Then that day, that night, 4 o'clock came. By the way, you have the wrong number. You should probably get ready for work. (laughs) Not exactly the response that Melanie was looking for. We've been studying the Gospel of John for several months, and today we conclude the I Am series. We're not done with the Gospel of John, but we're done with the I Am. We have one more statement in John 14, which we'll get to. But uh, after the new year, we're going to dive back into John chapter 13 uh, as we look at the last few hours of Jesus' life. But up until now, we've seen Jesus dealing with different types of people and how he responds differently to different people and how they then respond back to him. And so what we see as we look through John from chapter 1 to chapter 12 is a lot of different people and a lot of different responses that Jesus has. So think about who you may be as I go through these. To the religious person who is trusting their own good works for salvation, Jesus says, you must be born again. Uh, To the person who is the polar opposite of that and they're the outcast of society, who, because of their own scandalous sin, have now been rejected by the community, and they find themselves in broken relationship after relationship. Jesus says to them, he says, come and drink of me, and you'll never thirst again. 
So the person here or in Jesus's uh, day who lays in their excuses and um, is refusing to put their past behind them and truly be healed, Jesus would say, do you really wanna be made whole? Uh, Then rise up and walk. Uh, To those who were wanting to follow Jesus just for the miracles or just what Jesus could do for them, uh, Jesus would say, I'm the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty, but you've seen me and yet you still do not believe. To those who are again the opposite of that and who are deeply spiritually thirsty and cannot quench their thirst in this world, Jesus says, hey, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. And if you believe in me as the scripture has said, then living waters will flow from within you, speaking of the spirit. To the man or woman who is caught in their sin. They're exposed, they're embarrassed. They wanna be forgiven and free. Jesus says, well, I don't condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. And now to those who see those exposed and they're ready to throw the stones, they're condemning, Jesus says, hey, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone. To people who are spiritually blind, they're unable to rescue or help themselves, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And then those who are mourning or dead in their sins, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This morning in our I Am series, as we close it, we're gonna see how Jesus would speak today to the rebel, uh, the one who seems to be walking with Jesus, but deep down doesn't really believe. We, my wife and I were doing a parenting class and we heard about a little boy whose mom kept telling him, sit down, son, and he kept getting out of his seat. Sit down, son. And finally, she buckled him into his seat in the back and he said, I'm sitting down, but I'm standing up in my heart. <laughs> right? The rebel. What does Jesus say to the rebel? And what does Jesus say to the opposite of the rebel, the reverent? The one who's not just satisfied serving God or doing the outward, but they want their very lives to be poured out in complete sacrifice and surrender. So a good question to think about this morning is which of these men or women do I most identify with? In this text, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, which man or woman do I most identify with? This week has been a little bit of of a heartache as I've read through this text and examine, let the scriptures examine me, and as I examine the scriptures, and if you pray for me as as your pastor who studies the word, man, this is a week where it it kind of wrecks you. You realize, man, I'm the person I don't wanna be in this story. So I'm asking you to do what I did this week and to put yourself in the story. Uh, We're gonna start in verse one, dig a little bit deeper, uh, and look at the beginning of the last week of Jesus's earthly life and ministry before the cross. So the title of today's message is The Reverent and the Rebels. And I want us to ponder how we respond to Jesus. Are we reverent or are we rebellious? And what we'll find in our text is both types of people. These two types of people actually exist in the world today. There is a group of people in the world that look at Jesus with offense, but there's another group that looks at Jesus with offering. There are some who want to have Jesus arrested, but then there's some of us who have been, well, we've been arrested by him. There are some in this text that represent the world that sees what happens in this text as a wasted opportunity. But some look and say that's a worship opportunity. And so what we're actually gonna see is not two, but three reactions or responses to Jesus 
in these verses together. And what I want us to do is carefully put ourselves in the narrative and see which of these responses most accurately describes us. So here's the three groups of people. If you're taking note, this is how we're going to go as an outline. We're going to look at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in verses 1 through 11. Then we're going to see the great multitude in Jerusalem that are crying out Hosanna and laying down palm branches, verses 12 through 19. And then we're going to see the misinformed Greeks and why they're misinformed in verses 20 through 26, all right? That's where we're going as an outline. Look at verse 1. It says, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Okay, six days. A lot of information here in this verse, okay? Jesus would be dead in the tomb on Passover. So this is the week of. He's in Bethany. We've already established that it's about the distance. Bethany is about the distance from this location here to the Publix on the corner of Lakewood Ranch and State Road 70. So it's within a mile, mile and a half. And so uh, Bethany's small suburb town of Jerusalem, Jesus will be leaving in the morning, what we call Palm Sunday, to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. The humble king entering Jerusalem for the very last and fateful time. And so almost one half of John's gospel is written about the final week. We're already in chapter 12, but we're going to see the rest of the gospels that last week. It's a pretty important week. Matthew, in his gospel, um, used more than 33% of his gospel to cover that week. Mark, nearly 40%, and Luke, over 25% to recount the details of these last seven days of Jesus' life. Now, this verse, verse one, also explains that they went to Lazarus' house, and he points out over and over where, where he had raised him from the dead, whom Jesus raised from the dead. This is no small miracle. Uh, we mentioned last week, there's only a handful of people in the scriptures who have died, and then were risen, and then died again. Okay, the twice dead, once risen club. You know, there's only a few. Uh, in the New Testament. And so this is a huge moment, a huge catalyst in Jesus's ministry to propel him to glorify the Father by dying on the cross. This is the moment where the religious leaders, as we learned last week, are ready to end him. And so at the same time that there's people watching for Jesus, some are placing their faith in him and others are placing their hatred in him. So Lazarus, as they come to this party, what a party. I mean, I've been to some great wedding showers. I don't really get invited to baby showers. My wife does, and that's fine. I've been to some anniversaries. I've been to some really great Super Bowl parties. I've never been to a true walking dead party, <laughs> but that's, some of you get that reference. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> but this is a truly amazing celebration. Just imagine this. They, have, they had buried him four days, and now he is risen. Um, they are celebrating, to say the least. So verse 2 says, there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with them. We remember they sat, reclined at a U-shaped table, the guest of honor in the middle, and then outward the lesser and lesser guests. And so that's why James says you don't want to come in and sit at the wrong seat and be downgraded. Right? So Jesus is there. Most likely Lazarus uh, would be at his right or left. And so we learn from verse 2 that Martha was a servant. She was serving. We know that she's always doing that. Martha's always serving. She's an ultimate servant, constantly waiting on Jesus, constantly helping others, constantly preparing stuff behind the scenes. She is, and you are that Martha, if you were the one on, not Thanksgiving, but 
what, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're the mom in the kitchen prepping all the turkey, you're getting all that ready. That's Martha, she's behind the scenes. Where's Lazarus? Lazarus is sitting, he's laying down watching the, the game, right? So, so Martha loves Jesus, she's serving him uh, and that's her way of expressing love, I love that. So some of us, we're Martha's, we love to serve Jesus and that's our way of expressing love. Of the second person though is Lazarus and he's reclining at the table. What a great picture of someone who was dead in their sins and yet now has been resurrected and, and has that new life. And just leisurely, just spending time with Jesus. I love that. A true saint can recline with the Lord and doesn't fear wrath or judgment. They're at rest in the presence of Jesus. I love that. Now, there's a third person here, though, and that's Mary. And where is Mary always? Where is she always at? She's always at the feet of Jesus. Look at verse 3. It says, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Okay, so if you're taking note, the, the perfume that Mary offers is called pure nard. It's a fragrant oil or spikenard, um, and they got it from this, this aromatic herb that is found in northern India. Um, it actually is grown in the Himalayan mountains, it kind of has a rose or purple flower, uh, and it's basically ground up and uh, produces this oil. It was put in a flask. Usually the flask had a really long neck, thin uh, neck with a small bottle, and you'd have to break the neck of the bottle um, to use it. And so the Eastern custom was that if a vessel was used to serve a distinguished guest, then it should be destroyed so that it's never used for anyone of lesser importance. So this is a one-time offering. This is not open up the Chanel spray and put the lid back on. This is, I'm breaking this, this is it. This is a one use. Okay, so not only was this spikenard broken and poured out, but we learned from John that the entire house is filled with the uh, sweet fragrance of the perfume. If you have a teenage son, you know that he'll spray Axe before he comes out of his room. And you're like, well, that is the worst smell and it's filling the entire house, but it's better than a teenage smell, right? It's better than a teenage boy. And so, <laughs> you know, sweaty. So um, here, this sweet fragrance fills the house uh, and everyone who was there would have caught wind of it, so to speak. Now a pound, it says it was a pound, verse three, a pound of this would have cost, verse five tells us, about a year's wage, about a year's wage. Uh, in, in today's economy, in Bradenton, Florida, the median income is about uh, $40,000 for, uh, for an income. Uh, and so we can just establish this was not a small price to pay. But for Mary, it was. It was a sacrifice she gladly and generously gave. If you're taking notes, I just want to look at three or four things that, that Mary's act of worship here was. And we've covered this before as we've looked at this story in the past. But I think these are always good to look at. First of all, if you're taking note, Mary's offering was costly. It says very costly. Um, the critics complain here it could have been sold for 300 denarii, a year's wage. I wonder if you can imagine pulling up, we had those homeless bags, we, these love bags we've, we've distributed. I've gotten a chance to give one out uh, in the last few weeks. But imagine pulling up to the stoplight and instead you're like, you know what, here's my year's salary. I'm just going to give this to you on the street. Uh, it's very costly what she offers him. Not only that, but it's sacrificial. She broke the flask. It's not to be used anymore. Many scholars believe that perhaps this was Mary's dowry. 
Uh, this is what a woman would offer her husband in marriage. And so it's very possible that she's sacrificing what could be the beginning of a stable relationship in the future to more fully worship Jesus. For Mary, there's no going back. This is all for Jesus. It's a sacrifice. Thirdly, we learn that, that this offering is fragrant. This aroma would have affected Jesus. And in fact, it would have affected everyone in the home. Everyone would have been impacted by the fragrance. And not only that, but Mary's worship was intimate. She is at the feet of Jesus as he's leaning forward to eat. She's down at his feet. She's up close. She's vulnerable. She's anointing Jesus for burial and ultimately understood the gospel even when the disciples were still oblivious hours later. She knew what was coming. She was anointing him for his burial. They didn't know what was happening. Ken Geyer says, on the cross, stripped of his clothing, Jesus would wear only the perfume that Mary had lavished upon his hair. It was that perfume which filled his nostrils and covered the stench of mockers raveled around the cross. The Savior had come to earth to break an alabaster jar for humanity, and Mary had come that night to break one for him. It was a jar he never regretted breaking, nor did she. You see, Mary's offering was to prepare Jesus for the cross. This was something that was offered to him, and it's something that he willingly received. Yet, in that same gathering, there were some who looked at this with disdain. This beautiful fragrance to them was a stench. The price that was spent was not impressive. It was irritable. Uh, and so instead of seeing this as worship, they look at it as waste. Look at verse 4. It tells us specifically, John seems to be very specific in who he points out. He doesn't, he, you know, he throws all the disciples under the bus. Later, it's like, well, one of the disciples cuts off um, the, the high priest's servant's ear, and John's like, that was Peter. <laughs> He's very specific. He just wants everyone to know who it was, right? No, all the dirty laundry is laid out there. So the apostle of love, I tell you. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 4. One of his disciples, and then of course he names him, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. I mean, okay, we get it. Now he's being very specific. If he didn't hear, it's Simon's son. <laughs> he said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, John says, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. You know, when we begin to truly worship Jesus, let me just communicate this to someone here, we're really trying to serve Jesus. There's gonna be others who are offended by that. They're gonna look at that, maybe your family, maybe a husband, they're gonna say, I don't appreciate your devotion. And so it's offensive to him. Notice that Judas was indignant. He wasn't upset about the perfume. It was the cost that bugged him. This is wasteful, not sacrificial. He's looking at contempt with what she was giving to Jesus. He says, this is misplaced. We need to use this for more noble means. We need to help the poor. And then it's worth it. Then it's worth breaking. Uh, and, and he's critical. It's offensive to him. Often, we can do the same thing. We can be very uh, critical of others as they worship. Mary here has full worship. Judas, you could say, had empty worship. She was willing to give her all to the Lord, whereas Judas wanted to take from the Lord. She was willing to sacrifice herself. Judas wanted to save himself. She emptied her perfume to be full of Jesus, well, he was full of himself, and thus, if you're full of yourself, you're, of course, empty of Christ. And the scriptures remind us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Mary has the honor of being the one disciple, not one of the 12, but one of the disciples who would anoint Jesus, her king, for his soon coming death and burial. And Judas is the one who is corrected by Jesus uh, for uh, his selfishness. And so notice verse 7, Jesus answered, let her alone, she is kept this day for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not just for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This would have been buzz in the community. We want to know uh, that this guy Lazarus truly was risen. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Little known fact, they did want to kill Lazarus to silence the story. And so Jesus here rebukes uh, them. He rebukes Judas and, and says, look, she's kept this for the day of my burial. She's been sitting at my feet all along. She knows what's coming. He says, the poor you'll have with us always. And he's not in any way discounting poor people. He's just saying, Uh, that we can go and help poor people even today, 2018, we're planning on doing that for one of our Christmas outreaches to help people who are impoverished. Um, But what he was saying is this act of worship would only be possible for a few more hours. So what she's doing is admirable, it's right. And so notice with me, guys, two responses by two different people. One is a reverent response to Christ, one is rebellious. Now, what I wanna do now is switch gears and see the two responses that can come from the same group of people. Look at our second section, the multitude. Look at verse 12. It says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, and here's what they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now all through my life, I've always looked at this as a beautiful picture of worship. They're laying down palm branches. He's riding a donkey. This is a beautiful picture of worship. He, the donkey has cloaks on it, and Jesus, and the cloaks are on the ground, and the palm branches. This is just a beautiful picture of worship. And we even sing songs like, Hosanna! Uh, and, and, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the king. Okay, so please don't misunderstand what's happening here. Uh, this looks on the surface like a great act of worship huge throng of people, Um, this throng, this multitude, if you want to circle that word uh, in verse 12, this would have been in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, okay? Um, Not only people, but the law in Exodus 12 required you as a family to have your sacrificial lamb for Passover live with your family for at least three days. So not only is the city filled with like hundreds of thousands of people, but tens of thousands of lambs are also going through. Anyone know what that would sound like in the city? You don't have to act it out. But clustered in the city are all these people and all these lambs, and they're gathered near Passover, anticipating here, listen, not a religious or spiritual awakening. The people here are crying out for political revolution. This, this fascinated me this week. I can't believe I never, never saw this, study this. Palm trees were specifically used by the Jews as a picture, as a sign, as a symbol of nationalism. When you laid a palm branch down, it meant you were laying it down to help overthrow Rome. It was this idea that we are first, that our national pride in Israel is more important than anything else happening on the scene. 
This was, this palm branch was uh, the sign back at the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, when the Judean revolts later happened, a, a decade or two after this, and, the, and then many decades after, it was the palm branch that got put on coins. This was a symbol of not religious or spiritual awakening, uh, but this idea of political uh, revolution. So don't be fooled. Um, the palm branch would be the same today as the American flag for those that said America first. America is the most important thing in the world or the eagle. Uh, it would be the same thing as a red star hammer and sickle in a communist country that says communism first. It'd be the same thing as a swastika in Nazi Germany where they said uh, social, uh, nationalist socialist first. Okay? These people don't want salvation in a spiritual sense. They want salvation in a geopolitical sense. They want Jesus to be the Messiah who's gonna overthrow Rome a leader who's going to crush the opposition and the oppression and liberate them as a nation. Does anyone here today know what the word Hosanna means? Do you know what it means? It means save now. It sounds like a demand. It's really a prayer. It's a cry. It means save now. But listen, they're not lifting up Hosanna as a worship song, but as a national anthem. When they say the king of Israel here, that, that doesn't mean we want to worship you as our king that we submit to. They're saying, we want you to be our king, not Caesar. We want you to overthrow Rome. And that, friends, is very insightful. Because what happens next was predicted in Zechariah. In verse 14, it says, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's Cold. And then it says in verse 16, his disciples didn't understand this until after Jesus was crucified and risen. On the screen, here's what Zechariah 9, 9 says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, that means pay attention. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, listen, Jesus was not entering Jerusalem to set up a military kingdom, but a spiritual one. This was not a coup that he was hoping that would end Rome. This was, no, a sacrifice uh, that would put an end to Passover. Uh, Tenney says this, he did not come as a conqueror, but as a messenger of peace. He rode on a donkey, not the steed of royalty, but that of a commoner on a business trip. It's interesting to me. He didn't come to end Rome, but he ended the Passover. And so verse 17 says, Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Can you imagine being the Pharisee as we've been studying John? And here Jesus enters Jerusalem and the entire city is crying out Hosanna. They realize we're in trouble. And of course they're exaggerating saying the whole world has gone after him. But unknowingly they're prophesying, right? Because the whole world of, of Christ's followers has certainly gone after Jesus. But this same multitude, this crowd of Jews that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, the same group, not exactly the exact same people, but this same crowd would in unison in just a week or less be chanting not Hosanna, but crucify, crucify him. Often in the same mouth, 
can come blessing and curses. James says, brothers, this should not be. Have you ever seen the hypocrisy? You go, yeah, I've seen hypocrisy. No, no, no. Have you ever seen the hypocrisy in our own hearts when we gather to worship on, G- uh, gather to worship on Sunday, to worship Jesus Sunday morning, but by Sunday afternoon, we're walking in the flesh. You see the hypocrisy in your own life? Can you give me an affirming nod so I know that my family's not the only hypocrites here this morning? Man, there's often times with communion bread still in my mouth that I'm sinning. There are times that that we leave, we're in the parking lot and we're hauling off on the kids. What do you mean you were bad for your teacher? I'm gonna, right? There's times that we walk in the flesh. And like the multitudes here, we come to worship Jesus, but there's a mixed motive in our heart. We wanna be set free, but not from sin necessarily. We wanna be set free, but American Christianity says, oh, I wanna be set free from trouble. Oh, I wanna be set free from pain, from difficulty. We wanna fashion ourselves a more comfortable cross, one that's easier to wear and bear, but one that doesn't cost us anything. How many of us, like this crowd, and I'm gonna go there, are guilty, let me step on everyone's toes, guilty of putting nationalism above Christ. How many of us exalt America over Jesus, where we put the Democratic or Republican Party over the kingdom of heaven? I challenge us to not be like this mixed multitude. Uh, that I, I posted you know, last week with the election coming up. I said, I said ultimately, lamb is greater uh, than the other, what are they, donkey and uh, elephant? Lamb is greater. We have to ultimately live our lives um, realizing this world is not our home. Can we get an amen? This world's not our home. And so I think it's very important that we're involved at the civic level and politically we should be, but that's not where our hope is found, right? Our hope is found in Christ alone. And so guard our hearts that we don't fall into this crowd mentality of having mixed motives where I want Jesus to do certain things for me, but I'm willing to put something above him. And that brings us to our third group. Look at verse 20, the misinformed Greeks. It says in verse 20, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. So we can, um, we can surmise from verses 19 to 20 that some time had passed. This is probably uh, maybe a day had passed. Jesus is no longer riding the donkey into Jerusalem. Now he's teaching. Uh, and verse 20 tells us that certain Greeks came, um, and so they were most likely proselytized. They had converted to the Jewish religion. Um, they've heard about Jesus, and as Gentiles, they want to learn more. They probably heard about um, Lazarus being raised. And so they came to Philip, verse 21, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Now, Philip was the Greek name, uh, and so as a disciple with a Greek name, they seek him out. Uh, and he's also from Bethsaida, and so maybe that's why they came to him. But um, notice verse 21, their request is simple. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Or another translation says, we would see Jesus. And then verse 22 says, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now, I wish verse 21 would be what all of our friends would say to us. Uh, We we wish to see Jesus. Uh, One pastor said it should be written at the top of every pulpit in, uh, in the church, and I agree. We want to see Jesus. That's what we want from the pulpit. I agree with that. But I like verse 22 where it says that um, Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew is the one always bringing people to Jesus throughout uh, Scripture. And so uh, that was his reputation. So even though Philip could have brought these guys directly to Jesus, he's like, hey, Andrew, you kind of have 
like the, the direct line. So I'm gonna bring him to you. And then together they brought them to Jesus. These men, these, these Greeks came, these Gentiles, um, with a perception of who Jesus was. They were misinformed. They were coming to get something like, okay, we've heard about you. We wanna get to know more information. But verse 23 says, but. Okay, so Jesus is actually gonna speak something different than what they were expecting. So here's what he says to them. This is that moment that we've been waiting for in the Gospel of John. Here it is. He says in verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour has come. We've been waiting for this hour, haven't we? For weeks and months, we've been building in this anticipation of the hour is coming. And now he says, the hour has come. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And then he says, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, let my servant, uh, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, let him honor, or him my father will honor. Now, verse 23, um, Jesus probably had a sense that these men were either going to warn him about the uh, religious leaders in the city wanting to kill him, or they came with wrong motives. Either way, Jesus says, my hour is about to arrive. My hour is coming. And he speaks about the grain of wheat that falls and dies. Of course, he's speaking about himself here, uh, that Jesus would ultimately die, and from his death and resurrection, new life would come, and that new life would be enjoyed and would be fruitful and produce much grain. And so he's not just speaking about himself, though. He's also speaking in terms of discipleship for us. Jesus had to die for the fruit, the redemption, to be produced. And this botany lesson that he's given us shows us the seed has to be buried, it has to decay, it has to die before it grows into something greater. And that's ultimately how God planned his creation, uh, with the seed first, then the fruit from the death of the seed. He designed nature that way. And so the idea is that there's death first, then resurrection. So if Jesus didn't lose his life, no one here today would be saved. He's also speaking about us, though. We, too, must lose our life to truly find life. And so when he says in verse 25, he who loves his life, he's referring to the Greeks. He's referring to his disciples. He's referring to us. He's saying you should love your life, not this life. You should ultimately lose this life and love eternal life. We should be willing to lose our lives for his sake. Jim Elliott, who did lose his life, said he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, when Jesus says you should hate yourself, right, um, what he's not saying, he's not saying uh, that, as you look in verse 25, he who hates his life in this world, uh, he's not saying that you hate yourself today. Some people do that. Look in the mirror. I hate you. I hate my life. That's not the idea here. The idea uh, is not some sadistic thought of like, I hate myself. I want to die. That's not the idea. Uh, it's a paradox the world doesn't grasp. The idea is I hate all that I was in my flesh. I'm rejecting that, and I want to live for a different world. I want to live for a different life. I'm willing to lay that down and surrender my life, reject the past and the old life, like we sang earlier. I'm willing to realize I was prone to wander, and in the past, man, God captured me. He saved me. He rescued me, and I no longer want to live that life. I'm rejecting that. I want to live the life he has for me. The Greeks here were misinformed because they believed they were buying into a religion that helps them advance their cause, but they weren't expecting a death. 
Some of us misunderstand this, right? We think that if I come to Jesus, like, all of my wildest dreams are going to come true. He's got a, pu- a puppy for me. He's going to give me candy. Everything that I've ever longed for and desired, he's going to give to me. And he's just going to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise, and prosperous, and all of these things. We don't understand that Christianity is calling alongside the Lord to be crucified, to die to self, to lay down our lives like Jesus laid down his life. So the Jews who had lined up with palm branches, they wanted the same thing. They wanted a Messiah who would conquer their enemies militarily, not a suffering servant who laid down his life as a lamb to take away the sin of the world. In fact, in this chapter, it seems like only Mary, Martha, and Lazarus truly understood who Jesus was and why he would come. Three groups of people. And those who were coming to Jesus either came with consecration, they came with curiosity, or they came with wrong motives. Where are you at this morning? Where are we at? I want to take a a few minutes and apply this passage of Scripture. So in four ways. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot these down. You can snap a photo on the screen. But I want us to apply this in four different ways. And these are questions. And I want you to, again, put yourself in the narrative. Where are you at this morning? Where am I at? Hey, number one, does my worship for Jesus look self-serving like Judas? Does it look self-serving? Sacrificial worship and self-serving worship are complete opposites. One has a heart that's warmed for the Lord and the other is cold. This morning, are we white hot worshipers who fully surrender to Jesus or do we want Jesus to serve us? I heard a story, uh, I think it was about the Ottomans, it was in the Crusades and as many of them received Christ, they were being baptized, but they unsheathed their sword and as they were baptized, they held their sword above the water in an act to say essentially, I'm willing to be fully surrendered, but not my sword. Dave Ramsey says, many of us do that with our wallet. We hold our wallet out. Yeah, I'll be fully surrendered, but not this part of my life. Does that describe you? As you go to worship Jesus, this one area, Lord, is off limits. A.W. Tozer said, millions call themselves by his name. It is true. And pay some token homage to him, but a simple test will show how little he is really honored among them. Let the average man be put to the proof on the question of who or what is above, and his true position will be exposed. Let him be forced into making a choice between, think about these, God and money, between God and men, between God and personal ambition, God and self, God and human love, and God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However, the man may protest, proof is in the choice he makes day after day throughout his life. Wow. Mary offered Jesus everything. Judas wanted to take everything and eventually would indirectly be a part of taking Jesus's life. Now, I look at Judas and I wonder, wow, how could you do this? And it was probably through greed or maybe even just discontent that the devil gained a foothold in Judas's life. One pastor said, take heed of discontent. It was the devil's sin that threw him out of heaven, ever since which restless spirit loves to fish in troubled waters. Does that describe you today, discontented? See, Judas, in contrast to Mary's worship, just within a few hours, will leave the place where Jesus is and will sell Jesus out for 10%. 300 denarii, no, just 30 coins. 10% of Mary's sacrificial cost he's willing to sell Jesus out for. I think we do that for even less than that sometimes. J.C. Ryle said a man may preach from false motives, 
Men may write books and make fine speeches and seem diligent in good works and yet be a Judas Iscariot. But a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is serious. Are you a Judas today? Is your worship self-serving? Or number two, are you someone who sits at Jesus' feet often like Mary? I'd venture to say, like, to number two here, the honest answer to that, because we're a church, y'all. The honest answer is a big no. No, I am not sitting at Jesus' feet. We are busy, aren't we? Can you look at your neighbor and just say, you're too busy? Just go ahead and do that for me this morning. You're too busy. You're too busy. I'm looking at myself. We are just too busy. The epidemic of busyness, which in America is a report, epidemic of busyness in America. They found this out. Uh, Listen to this. People in traffic, according to this study, people in traffic are more stressed, meaning blood pressure and heart rate, than fighter pilots in combat or than riot police, okay? (laughs) Hashtag road rage, right? Um, They found that in America, we work more hours in a week than in any other other developed country. They actually surveyed kids, and they said, what would you want most to change about your mom and dad's work? And uh, the answer was not that mom and dad would work less hours and just be home. You know what their answer was? Their answer, number one by far, was this. Oh, I just want mom and dad to not be so stressed out. Uh, They say that we get 2.5 hours less of sleep than we did per capita 100 years ago. 2.5 hours less sleep. Someone's like, 2.5 hours is all I get uh, every night. Okay, well, actually 40 million Americans, that's one in three working adults, one in three gets less than six hours a night, which is by definition sleep deprivation. Uh, Even though we think we can multitask, uh, research has found you can't multitask, right? They call it switch tasking. So not only is it illegal to text and drive, you actually can't. You can't text and drive. You physically, you're unable to do that, okay? So even though we have all these tech advances and ways to save time and money, I don't know about you, I don't find myself drawing closer to Jesus because I have a new app. What I find is that now I want to cut more corners on my quiet time or my time with Jesus uh, and, and even on how I pray and how I grow in grace. We have 168 hours a week, but it doesn't feel like we're spending those, those hours sitting at Jesus' feet. I don't know if it has to be that way, but John Stott says, the thing I know will give me the deepest joy, namely to be alone and unhurried in the presence of God, aware of his presence, my heart open to worship him. That's often the thing I least want to do. You see, so often, guys, we're maxed out, we're busy, and we find ourselves overworked and stressed out, and and it seems like the farthest thing from our mind is to just go and sit at Jesus' feet and listen. And as a Christ follower, that is detrimental to our spiritual health. Um, Kevin DeYoung, in his book, little book called Crazy Busy, he said, this book's too, uh, I'm too busy to write this book, and you're too busy to read it, so I'm going to make it short. <laughs> it's a great read. I think we've had it at our resource center, and it's definitely at our library. But uh, he says, busyness kills more Christians than bullets. Busyness. One of the marks of faith in the sovereignty of God is a person who's willing to rest, to sit, to worship, to pray like Mary. And the question, church, is are we willing, do we just spend that time sitting at Jesus' feet the way Mary always seemed to. See, she knew what was coming. She knew the cross and resurrection was coming. Why? Because she had spent that time at Jesus' feet. Because she had taken the time to be intimate, to know the Lord. To not just do work for him, 
to not just be blessed by the miracles that he performs in, in his life, in her life, but that she would ultimately say, he's enough. I don't want something from him. I just want him. He's enough. Is that how we live our lives? Do we sit at the feet of Jesus often? You say, no, I don't. I don't do it often enough. How about this, number three? Do I earnestly seek after Jesus like the Greeks? Okay, even though they had mistaken or mixed motives, the Gentile Greek simple request was pretty awesome. They said, we just wanna see Jesus. Can, can we see Jesus? Where's Jesus? I wanna see Jesus. Is that the prayer of our heart? Is that true of us this morning? More than anything else, is that your number one desire? It's okay to admit, no, it's not. Would that we make that the number one goal of our life. Spurgeon said, if Christ is not all to you, he's nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part savior of men. If he be something, he must be everything. And if he be not everything, he is nothing to you. Wow. In my life, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus in my marriage. I want to see Jesus in my parenting. I want to see Jesus in my thought life. I want to see Jesus in my attitude at work. I want to see Jesus in the classroom, in the relationship, in what we post on social media, in how we engage with our waiters later today at lunch. I want to see Jesus. Do you long to see Jesus with adoration and a pure desire to say, you know, it's all about you, Lord. I just want to see you. Finally, number four, do I love my life like the multitude or am I willing to lose it for Jesus' sake? You think about this group that lays their palm branches down and cries out, Hosanna, in less than a week, they're gonna cry crucify. I call that being a fickle follower, a fickle follower. I want Jesus for the benefit that he offers me. I want the hand of God, but I don't really care much for the face of Jesus. Give me the conquering king, but not the suffering servant. They don't understand why Jesus came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And so the question today, is that how we are? I just want to save my life. I love my life. See, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, like, none of these things move me. I, I don't care about my life. I'm willing to give it up. I'm willing to lay it down uh, because the most important thing is to see Christ exalted. As we close this morning, I want to invite the worship team forward and go ahead and close your Bibles and get settled for a minute. We sang this song earlier, and we love to sing this song at Shoreline. But consider these words again, and again, put yourself in the lyrics. Let me put it on the screen for you. The song, All I Have is Christ. Here's some of the lines of the song. It says, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope you would own, here it is, a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Can you leave that up for a minute? As we were singing this earlier, that one line, the fourth line, th uh, third from the last, you suffered in my place. As we were worshiping earlier, I just thought of that scene at Golgotha where there's a man by the name of Barabbas. You guys know Barabbas? He was the insurrectionist rebel who was supposed to be crucified that day. He woke up knowing he was a dead man walking. He's gonna be killed that day, crucified by Rome. And yet we know what happened with Pilate and Barabbas by the people's desire was set free. And I just thought as we were singing that, man, Barabbas could sing this. Barabbas could say, 
He suffered in my place. And every Easter, I like to say just the three words, I am Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. I'm the one who deserved to be nailed to the criminal's cross. And yet, as a rebel, Jesus took my place. Jesus came in my stead. And so there are reverent and there are rebels. And let's be honest, church, you and I are the rebels. You and I are by nature, according to Ephesians 2, children of wrath, living in stark, rebellious treachery against a holy and righteous and almighty God. And yet Romans 5 tells us this incredible news, that while we were still weak, we have it on the screen, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though for, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love and that while we were still sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Imagine that, the faithful, righteous, sinless lamb was put to death for the rebel. See, in our furthest state, in our weakest link, the weakest point, for me it was when I was at college and someone sold me a car with a Christian fish on the back and I wanted to run from Jesus. I took the Christian fish and I snapped it off. My friends and I cursed the Lord and we threw that Christian fish on that car. We, we snapped it and threw it in the gutter. I was such a fool. I was running from Jesus thinking, man, I'm so cool, so awesome. I'm a rebel. Depraved, dead, lost, separated from God. Think of your life before Christ. Some of you today don't yet know Jesus. This still describes our life, a tragic, hopeless life, or we could say a prolonged death. And yet in that state, God looks down with love with mercy and is willing to send his son to purchase you, to redeem you, to cover your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because of the mercies of God, the love and the grace of Jesus, we now have reconciliation with the Father through the death of Christ. And so my pastor's challenge for us, not just for today, not just for this week, but even through all this holiday season, through our lives is that we would do these two things, that we would sit at the feet of Jesus. I challenge you to surrender at the feet of Jesus. There's a crazy month ahead of us. We all know it's coming, it's busy. We are inundated with recitals and programs and dinners and obligatory work lunches and dinners and, and parties. We've gotta to go to these family get-togethers that we really were praying to get sick and not have to go to. And, I just wanna challenge you to sit, take time to sit at the feet of Jesus, to surrender at the feet of Jesus. Now, today, we're gonna to close in prayer and you might say, hey, Pastor Pilgrim, that message was for me. I am so busy, I am so overworked. I'm not sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I need to hear what Jesus said to Martha, Mary's sister, where he said, Martha, Martha, you had to tell her name twice, so you needed to pay attention. He said, you're worried about many things and only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better. And so just sit at my feet, listen to me, learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. 
You might come this morning and say, you know what? Yeah, that's me. I'm weary. I'm heavy burdened. I need to find rest for my soul. I just need to sit at the feet of Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to be prayed for this morning, but you got to humble yourself and raise your hand. So if you would bow your heads together, close your eyes. Is there someone here this morning? You say, that's for me. I need to sit at the feet of Jesus. I am rushed. I am weary. I am busy. And today I just want to sit at his feet and know I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm beloved. I see your hands going up. Anyone else? We gotta put the calendar down, we gotta put the to-do list down. We need to pick up our Bibles, carry our cross, and be willing to not just do something, but stand there, amen? Father, I pray for those who have lifted their hands this morning, that you would be their sufficiency, you would be their all in all. That as we confess, Lord, we've rushed out to get things done, we've rushed into our day, hurried and harried, and we don't realize we need to start the day with gratitude and just by spending it at your feet, listening to you. Maybe it's a devotional, certainly, Lord, a time in, in scripture, offering our lives to you in prayer and gratitude. But Lord, I pray that you give us the time, give us the realization that that is choosing what's better, spending time with you. Lord, for those of us with mixed motives today and we're coming hoping to get something from Jesus, would you help us to surrender our lives and to know that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added as well. Let us put you first, Lord. We love you. We commit this time to you. We want to praise your name and lift you up as we worship you together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close and celebrate what Christ has done for us at Calvary? Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.